2: You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's sponsor is Tim Tebow's book, Bronco and Friends, A Party to Remember, a new book from the New York Times bestselling author and football star. In a world that often expects everyone to look and act the same, standing out can make us feel less than. But as Bronco and his friends learn, bringing your own particular gifts to the party makes it more fun for everyone. This sweet story and adventure to remember reminds children and their favorite adults that every one of us is special, wonderfully made, and essential to God's big party. Find out more at timtebocom slash broncoandfriends. Rabbi Steve Letter currently serves as the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, one of the largest synagogues in the world. Newsweek has named Rabbi Letter one of the 10 most influential rabbis in America. His sermon on capital punishment was included in an award-winning episode of The West Wing. As the author of published essays and bestselling and the bestselling book, More Beautiful Than Before, Rabbi Letter's newest memoir, The Beauty of What Remains, is an inspiring book that takes us on a journey through the experience of loss and how loss makes life beautiful by giving it meaning and love. His inspirational works have received prestigious media attention on CBS This Morning, NPR, The Steve Hart show and NBC's Today Show, among others. He currently lives in Los Angeles. Welcome, Rabbi Leonard. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the beauty of what remains, your brand new book.
1: Thank you. I'm really happy to be with you today.
2: Uh, well, first of all, whenever my friend Karen Frankel tells me to do anything, I do it because she has the best taste and recommendations uh, for everything. So when she recommended your book, I was like, of course. But then I read it and it was unbelievably amazing. So delighted to be connected with you. Thank
1: you, I. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about it.
2: My pleasure. Now I have to go back and read all your other books. But anyway... <laughs> Could you please tell listeners what this book is about and what inspired you to write it?
1: I think the best way I can frame this book is as an apology. And let me explain. I had been a rabbi for about 30 years before I started writing this book. And obviously it helped many, many hundreds, thousands. I calculated that I I had officiated at roughly a thousand funerals over those 30 years. And I thought I was doing a pretty good job of helping people and guiding them through this process and of helping people discover what an extraordinary teacher death is when it comes to helping us lead meaningful lives. So I thought I I would have given myself, you know, maybe an A minus, maybe even an A in the rabbi pastoral department. And then my father died. And in the run up to, during, and the aftermath of his death, I realized that despite my best efforts in the past, I was really, as I say in the book, one degree shy of the deepest truth when it comes to guiding people through the many ways death teaches us about life. And I wrote this book really as a kind of apology, an attempt to undo what I had gotten wrong and to get it right and to put the reader on my shoulder as I walked through my own trajectory with my father's 10 year decline due to Alzheimer's and his death. And to put the reader on my shoulder as I walk into the homes and hospital rooms of so many others to help them through what is inevitable for all of us. And so I, I guess, to, again, to kind of succinctly answer your question, the book is an attempt to get, to get it right.
2: Wow. Well, there was so much helpful information in the book. I don't think you need to apologize. I think a minus would have been perfectly fine. By the yeah, way, well. <laughs> <laughs> you would still have graduated with honors. You, in my you book. didn't grow <laughs> up in my family. <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> in my family, they were happy with a minus. So, anyway, at least for me, no, I think that you, even without that layer, you had so many tidbits and anecdotes and stories from the many people you've helped including really gut-wrenching decisions like what to say with your rabbi hat on versus your Steve hat on to the woman who wanted to know if her family could assist in her death at the last minute and you didn't know what to do to all these other moments where you've helped families sort of say goodbye, moments you've come in with jokes. And I appreciate you putting in a few jokes in case (laughs) the rest of us are really at a loss and need a good one (laughs) to buffer our conversation skills. I'm going to have to like photocopy those and hang them up. But there's this whole piece of you, which is like, this is me as the rabbi, and this is me as me. And then this book, I feel like, is like where the two come together.
1: Well, I, I did want to explore in this book the tension and the dance that goes on within me when I am both rabbi and friend, rabbi and son, rabbi and husband, rabbi and father. And often those are aligned, but sometimes they're in conflict. And what I really, really tried to do in this book is to weave that conflict and that tension and that resolution throughout the entire book. It's another component of putting the reader on my shoulder. Because so few people see behind the curtain when it comes to what clergy really do and how they do it. And so few understand, so few clergy honestly understand the dynamic within themselves that has to be resolved, the cognitive dissonance between, in my case, the rabbi and the man, the rabbi and the son. And addressing that conflict has made me a better rabbi, and a better son. And that's the end result. And that, that's part of the reason I called the book The Beauty of What Remains. There are other reasons, but that's a big part of it, is that once you engage in that internal conversation, what remains is really, in my for me, something quite beautiful.
2: Well, one of the most helpful pieces of advice in this book, and there is just so much, is for anybody who's feeling anxious about death, it means they're not dying. Yes. And that you can just go back to living and wait yes. because <laughs> time, when you die, then you can start worrying about it. For somebody with like immense amounts of anxiety about everything like me, that was very helpful. Yeah. Here, you. Re- I'm just going to read this one quote. You said, most people are ready for death the way we are all ready for sleep after a long and exhausting day. We just want to pull the covers up around our aching heads and settle in for the peace of it all. We are not anxious about sleeping. We are not depressed about it. We are not afraid of it. Disease, age, and life itself prepare us for death. There there is a time for everything. And when it is our time to die, death is as natural a thing as life itself. Consider this very good news for those of us who fear death. Dying people are not afraid of dying. If you are afraid of dying, it is not your day. Anxiety is for the living.
1: Yes. Anxiety oh, is for the I'm living. I'm
2: actually going to post this on my Facebook <laughs> <WhatsApp laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's going to say.
1: It's really true. And it's really helpful for people. And it, it's sort of counterintuitive, but it's really helpful when I can look someone in the eye after they tell me, well, I'm, I'm really afraid to die. And I say, well, that's because you're not dying. Certainly not today. Because when you are really actively dying, you will not be afraid. Zibi, in 33 years now, at the bedside of more than 1,000 dying people, when that person is really ready to die, not once, not one single person has expressed fear to me. And I ask. Are you afraid? And the answer has every time been no. Now I know that's anecdotal evidence, but it's, it's pretty persuasive. And, and it is why I can say with a very high degree of confidence that if you fear death, you're not dying. Take a breath.
2: You know, it's interesting. My grandmother just passed away. She was ninety-seven and had been very healthy until the very end. And because of COVID, we could only say goodbye over Facetime, which ah, was just so horrific beautiful. and just so sad. So she was there with a, with an aide and as she was unconscious at the end, I was like, well, is she afraid? Did she say she was afraid? Because when she was alive, she was always talking about how afraid she was to die. Yeah. And like, does she know she's dying? Is she afraid? And she was like, no, no. I mean, maybe she was just saying that to make me feel better, but she said, no, no, not at all. No, I, I told her I was right here and she said, okay. And then when I would say over FaceTime, like, you know, Goggy, don't be afraid. Everything's okay. She just kind of, her eyes kind of flickered and that was it. And I didn't see any fear. I just felt like, I don't know, sense of peace. Yes.
1: Yeah. There is a point in life when death makes sense, but you have to be at that point in order mm-hmm. to understand that.
2: Well, so I guess it's good I don't understand it.
1: Well, it's a sign
2: that you- It's a sign that I'm alive. <laughs> uh,
1: that that you're alive and not actively dying. Correct. Right. So,
2: but you know, the, the rest of your book though talks about, not the rest, but much, much, a lot of your book talks about the effect of death on the living, right? And correct. the loss of other people. And the effect of illness, like all the things you had to go through with your dad. I mean, that was, oh my gosh, the scene with you tossing the balloon at your dad. I mean, all these like moments of cry uh, when you go and cry in the hallway and you can just put yourself in your shoes time and time again and feel that pain and suffering. Anyway, but the rest of it is about how you deal with the loss. And you had great advice on that too. And even how you, you know, it says, you say it won't always hurt so much. You said, I used to think that, what they meant was that eventually grief abates, the ache diminishes. Now, what I think they meant was not that it won't always hurt so much, but that it won't always hurt so often. That's right. Tell me about that.
1: Well, so many, many years ago, I one of the most difficult things that I I have to manage is the death of a child. There are very few things in life more difficult than that. And of course, as, as the rabbi, I take that on my shoulders with the family. I carry it with them. I even carry a cas- the casket i always volunteer to carry the casket because it's too painful for the parents you know just imagine a casket the size of a shoebox i <laughs> oh <my> guess <gosh>, stop <laughs> so as a way of learning more about the the feeling of losing a child i read a book many years ago by edited by two women both of whom had children who died and it's an anthology of writers writing about writers who had children die writing about the experience so, for example, Robert Frost had four children die. Mark Twain had a child die. And they wrote about it. And in the introduction, these women say that the, the thing that helped them the most and was the most honest was when someone said to them, it won't always hurt so much. And I said that for years. And this is part of the apology component of the book. I said that to be so many years, decades to parents, I would say, look, the most honest and helpful thing I can tell you right now is it won't always hurt so much. Then my father died, obviously a more normative circumstance than the death of a child. And I stopped saying that to people because it's not true. The truth is it won't always hurt so often, but when it hurts, it hurts every bit as much. And that is the truth. And that has to be said and has to be, and I, and I find by enlightening people in this way, it enables them to go with these waves that come at them. I, I compare grief, one of the things I say in the book is that anyone who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line doesn't understand grief because grief is non-linear. And this business about there being stages of grief, in my opinion, it's nonsense. Grief is much more like waves. It ebbs and it flows, it ebbs and it flows. The waves get further apart. But every once in a while, when your back is turned, you can just get slammed by a rogue wave that you didn't see coming. It can be a song. It can be a taste. It can be a place. It can be something you desperately wish you could share with your loved one who's gone. These waves hit us. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Dot com slash moms don't have time.
1: And when you're really looking at a wave, you have two choices. You can try to stand up against it. And what normally happens then is it crashes in on you and throws you upside down and you're gasping for air and lost and confused. Or you can submit and lie down and float with it until you're able to stand up again. And that's grief. It's the learning to float with it until you can stand again. And that is the honest truth about grief.
2: Well, I have been then on the beach watching this ocean sort of ravage my husband and his sister as their mother and grandmother just passed away from COVID. And I have watched firsthand exactly what you're talking about. And especially the first week, in the first week, every few hours, somebody would fall, right? It was one and then the other and the other. And I was just like running back and forth. And now it's been a couple months and it's still, well, it knocked me over this morning and, oh, well, I was okay. But then, you know, two days ago, this and yes. it's, it's exactly it. It's, it's, and it's not predictable. You can't plan for it.
1: No, no. And I think the fact that I think it's always okay when it comes. And I don't think there's a wrong way to grieve. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about a person who, you know, doesn't eat and can't sleep for months and is, you know, becomes clinically ill. But there's really no wrong way, just as there's no really wrong moment or time to feel love, because actually that's really what you're feeling. And that's another way of seeing grief that that makes it more beautiful to embrace, which is grief is really a reflection of love. If you think about one of the things I talk about in the book. The book is for everyone. Obviously, I'm a rabbi and I wrote it, but it's really not a Jewish book. It may be a book for Jews like everyone else, but it's not a Jewish book. But I do in the book talk about that verse from the 23rd Psalm that everyone knows Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. And there are two very nuanced and very beautiful and important, profound ideas in that verse. The first, we walk through this valley of darkness, we don't stay there forever. But even more nuanced and more profound is this idea of a this metaphor of a valley of shadows for grief. And if you think really deeply about a shadow, no matter how long, no matter how dark, it's proof that the light is still shining. You cannot have a shadow without light. Without light, you have total darkness, not a shadow. So the light is obstructed in this metaphor by mountains on each side of the valley, of course, but in the real world by our grief. But what is grief really, if not a reflection of the love that we had and continue to have with the person who has died. And so in that way, we can start to rethink grief and see it as something quite beautiful and really exquisite despite its pain. And there's a duality, of course, to grief. Like I also say in the book, there's a duality to memory. You know, we always say, may his memory be a blessing. Wolf Blitzer's made a living off of that on CNN. The truth about memory is, that it's beautiful and it hurts. It's both. In the book, I say it's like being caressed and spat on at the same time. That's memory, <laughs> right? That's memory, you know? And the more we understand the fullness of the experience, the more we're able to find the beauty within it. And ultimately, and maybe maybe there's a little bit of hyperbole in this statement to the ears of others, but as a guy who's been on the inside of this for a long time, I will tell you, I think death is the great teacher in life. Imagine a deathless life. Think about that for a moment. Imagine a life that was endless. What value would that life have? What would happen to ambition? What would happen to love? What would happen to having children? It would all be gone. Death is the great teacher when it comes to really embracing and enjoying and getting the most out of, and giving the most to life and love themselves.
2: Well, now I'm getting worried that maybe you're sick, because it sounds like you're not scared at all to die either.
1: No, well, I wouldn't, I'm not, I don't think about it because, look, I don't want to die. I'm 60 years old, and I want to have grandchildren, and I want to have fun, and all of these things. But when I do feel any fear of death, I remind myself of my own words, which is, you're clearly not dying if you're worried about dying because when the day comes, you're going, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You're going to be better than fine because it's as natural, as I said, as birth itself. And, you know, my kids worry about because I especially now during covid, you know, I'm officiating at three, four five funerals a week now. Oh, Very large congregation, obviously. And, you know, my kids get wind of this and they've been at the dinner table for their entire lives listening to Daddy's Day. And my kids worry about me dying. I said, look, rare accidents occur, but the truth is I am not likely to die until you are ready to handle it.
2: No, that's really nice. I'm going to feel that and tell my kids.
1: Yes. And it's true. Well, we can get to what to say to kids about when they ask <laughs> you, if, are you going to die? Because there's a whole conversation that you can have with them that I think will really calm them down quite a bit and maybe calm you down too, Zibby. I don't know.
2: <laughs> no, I know you wrote about that in the book as well. You had advice on like every everything that anyone could well, ever I, want.
1: Look, I uh-huh. wanted it to be a field guide and a journey. That's mm-hmm. really what I was hoping to do. Put you, put you the reader on my shoulder and journey through the resolution of the rabbi versus the son, the son versus the rabbi, the resolution that memory brings to my relationship with a very complicated and difficult father and also a very amazing father, as most high achievers are. You know, they're complicated and they're amazing. And also to put you on my shoulder on this journey with other families and other situations. And I hope that it's a field guide for this journey. And I ultimately hope that it really helps people. Well, you read it. You, you tell me and be honest. You know, I hope that it ultimately helps people take their own lives more seriously and appreciate those lives more deeply. I mean, that's really the hope. that's why it's called the beauty of what remains.
2: What you said, I think one of my favorite lines that I think reflects this, you said, the profound and simple truth is that we are each writing our own eulogy every day with the pen of our lives. Yes. yeah. That's also going up on the bulletin board. I mean, these are like profound statements that you make, and it's so true. We're The way we live each day—the culmination of that—that's all that we're left with. That's what people will say when we're gone. That's all you can do—is like live the way you want to be remembered. It sounds obvious, but it's so important.
1: That's right. And there's this notion that I often share with people about living as a good ancestor. You know, we don't think of ourselves as ancestors. We are, just not yet. And so, can can you live as a good ancestor? That's a really good question to ask oneself. Am I being a good ancestor? for generations yet to be born. You know this uh, line of cleaning products called seventh generation? Mm -hmm. That comes from the great law of the Iroquois tribe, which says that when the elders make a decision, they have to consider the impact of that decision on the seventh generation to follow. What a way to live. What a world we would have if we lived that way.
2: Wow, certainly something to aspire to. That's a lot of cleaning. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a little about the writing of this book. It said you wrote in the book that you took a sabbatical and spent a month in Palm Springs, just writing about death in the midst of COVID. Tell me what that experience is like.
1: Well, I had off and on, I set aside time. I need a long runway to write. I'm not a guy who, oh, I have an hour and a half. I'm going to sit down and knock out, you know, 10 pages. I need a really long runway. There's a lot of pacing there's a lot of straightening up. There's a lot of, you know, snacking on sunflower seeds and potato chips. I need, I need a lot of runway. And I also need to be intensely alone when I write. And so most of this book was written in an empty house in Palm Springs and in an empty cabin in Joshua Tree, which is an extraordinary desert about three hours from Los Angeles. And I locked myself in a cabin with no TV, no internet, nothing, and just this book just poured out. And that's, I don't know if that's a process as much as it's an environment, but putting myself in the right environment with absolutely no distractions is the only way that I could do it. Because this book forced me into the duality of memory because I had to go back and revisit the pain of my father's Alzheimer's, the pain of his death, the pain of his life, The pain of his mistakes, and to find a way for myself, and therefore I hope the reader, to see how we can round the sharp edges of our loved ones through memory and through our own lives and our own behavior in their honor and memory.
2: Beautiful. All right, last question. What advice would you have for aspiring authors?
1: There are a few things. First, I would say be aware that there is not one fun thing about writing a book. Not one single, enjoyable, fun thing, okay? You have to know that going in. There's nothing sexy about it. It is the hardest kind of work, and it's really work. I think it was Hemingway who said, yeah, writing's easy. You just sit down and open a vein, (laughs) okay? So you really have to want to say what you're planning on saying, right? That's the first thing. The second thing I would say to aspiring writers is, Write what you know. The best books, I believe, are not research-based. They're people writing about what they intuitively know and have lived. And thirdly, I would say, get published everywhere, every chance you get. Say yes to everything. My writing career started because I said yes to writing a weekly column for a little Jewish newspaper in Los Angeles and a publisher started reading the columns and I got my first book deal and someone read that book and I got my second and someone read that book and the third and et cetera, et cetera. And it's because I say yes to every opportunity to be published and because it makes you better and because you learn. And so it's a combination of these things. Have no illusions about the pain of it all and write what you know and say yes to every opportunity. And since I began the answer on such a carping note to that question, that there's not one fun thing about it, I will say, and this happened to me two days ago. This is a little, I don't know, it's, it's emotional for me, writing a book, especially one as intimate as this. Other than holding my children in my arms when they were born, there is no feeling like holding your book when the publisher sends it to you and you're the first, and you open that carton, and you hold that book, there's no feeling like it on earth. I dreamed about it, I I was in the writing program at Northwestern as an undergrad, and you know, this feeling of, I am a writer, is a very deep and beautiful and powerful feeling. It is not the same as, I am a parent, I am a mother, I am a father, but it's in the same universe, And it's pretty amazing feeling, and and to know to know that you've helped people. What else really? What else could one ask for than that?
2: That's amazing. You're such a good speaker. You're such a great writer. I wish I could just join your congregation. And
1: plenty of room on the pause. You're in. uh,
2: Yeah, maybe I'll do a virtual. uh, I'll join my third temple. You're in. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much for all of your time. Thank you for this amazing and so helpful book. Even by the way, the article you wrote recently about surviving the holidays with grief in your life, that was also super useful. So thank you for all of it. And I hope to stay in touch.
1: Thank you, Zuby. I deeply appreciate what you're doing and and thank you.
2: My pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks again to Tim Tebow and his book, Bronco and Friends, A Party to Remember, for sponsoring today's episode. Go check it out at timtebow.com slash broncoandfriends. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.